Hello, this is Mona Tanjeff, past president of NCSM, and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders, the Game Changer series. Join me and my co-host, John Sangiovanni, as we sit down and have conversations with emerging and established leaders about how they are changing the game in mathematics education. Gandhi said, we need to be the change that we want to see in the world. So listen as we talk to mathematics leaders who are being the change that they want to see in mathematics education. We will learn about their inspiration, perceptions, and of course, their game-changing actions. Mathematics leaders, we know that the status quo is unacceptable, so it's time to change the game. All right, that's right. It's time to change the game. Hello, I'm Mona Tanchef, and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders, the Game Changers series. Hello, Mona, and I'm John San Giovanni. Welcome, folks. So John and I are the co-hosts, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Rachel Lambert about leadership strategies to increase access to meaningful mathematics for students with disabilities. Dr. Rachel Lambert's work investigates the intersections between disability studies in education and mathematics education. Dr. Lambert has published critical analysis of the academic fields of special education and mathematics education, particularly particularly for the deficit construction of students with disabilities within these fields in the absence of disability and discussions of equity. Yeah, and I wanna add on to that. As an alternative to deficit constructions of students with disabilities, her recent work has proposed shifting intervention from a singular focus on what students know to how students engage in mathematical practices, which I look forward to hearing more about. Her current research is on neurodiversity through analysis of experimental or experiential <laughs> knowledge of dyslexic mathematicians. Another thing I'm interested to hear more about, as well as studies of how students with learning disabilities can be supported to more deeply engage in meaningful mathematics routines, such as counting collections and, and number strings. Other studies involve integrating the standards for mathematical practice into individual education plans or IEPs and developing a vision of universal design for learning and mathematics. So thank you. Um... Dr. Lambert, for being with us today. So to get started, um, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your story, your training experiences, and your passion for your work today. Well, hi. I am so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of NCSM. I love to go to your conferences because um, people really are really interested in this issue around disability and equity in mathematics. Like I find that math ed leaders are way ahead of the game in terms of their commitment to seeing change in this area. So I, I, I love your organization. Um, <laughs> so do we. <laughs> okay. Well, nice job. Um, so I, I come to this work as I, I got my, uh, my first credential I got in secondary English, and then I ended up as an elementary math, special education and disability expert. So it shows how we kind of shift around in education. What happened with me was that I became a special education co-teacher. I worked in Harlem, New York, and I loved my job. I was trained by progressive math educators and um, started teaching in an inclusive classroom. And what I found was that student, my students um, included students with disabilities, a range of different disabilities, and they loved engaging in inquiry mathematics. When the math was meaningful to them, they were 100% on board. And when I didn't work very hard on my lesson and it was kind of boring and it was a little worksheety, they were disengaged and didn't seem to learn. 
I got really interested in this issue. And especially when I sort of started to, as a teacher, dive into the research. And I was like, what? Because the research was basically saying the opposite of my experience. It was telling me that, I mean, I felt that it was straight up telling me that kids with disabilities couldn't think mathematically and couldn't engage in inquiry. That's really the takeaway that I took from some of the research. So that kind of lit a fire in me. And that's why I left teaching after 10 years and got my doctorate. And so this has been my singular focus. It's like, how can we improve the experience of kids with disabilities in math class? And how can we get rid of these ideas that are, I, that are really, really damaging? This deficit thinking idea that kids shouldn't be a challenge and shouldn't be exposed to really hard ideas and shouldn't be allowed to think for themselves. Well, Mona and I agree that with you that of all the things in math education, this is something that needs to change. This is the game that needs to change. In fact, our current series is about being a game changer. Uh, you change from secondary English language arts. That, that's a big game changer. Um, tell me, what, what does it mean to you to be, to be a game changer? Well, I mean, I have, I think that, I was thinking about this question because I knew I was going to be in the Game Changers series. I don't really think of myself as a game changer. I oh, don't you are. because I just think that this whole thing is going to only change when a ton of us are working on it together. Like it, it's going to need work to be done at the level, a teacher level, teacher leader level, researcher level. Um, and it's really, it's complex. There's just a lot that needs to shift. And so I guess I feel like I'm part of a big old game change, but okay. I know that that's a kind of not the right answer that I'm not a game changer. No, but I, it, that answer's perfect. It's, it's like, um, that's why I like going to NCSM. Like I did a presentation a couple of years there and there were people out the door who couldn't get into the session. And whenever I talked to them, they're like, tell me how to change math IEP goals. And like, they were like yelling at me. They're all like angry about this current situation around special education and math. And they're like, we need to change it now. And I'm like, oh, I like being with these group of people because the, the passion about changing it and changing the system too, to work better for kids is so, that's what we, all, we, we need to be focused on. That's, that's why. We I'm couldn't thinking. agree more. In fact, I was in that session. I wasn't yelling at you. Um, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was right there with you though. And the fact that uh, this desperately needs to change. Yeah, this is a... So special education has a, a stigma around it. And I know that people and leaders that I work with, we need to, as you mentioned, shift our thinking around special education. So let's talk about that stigma of education, sort of the deficit language associated with the term special education. And so how can we as math leaders begin to, to make that shift to thinking more around inclusive education? So one of the things that I've learned from the disability rights movement and disability activists is that words do matter, but you could change the word a million times. If you don't change the underlying stigma, if you don't challenge underlying ableism, we could just keep changing. We could take special education, we could call it something else. We could take disability, we can call it something else. Uh, this is why disability advocates are often really frustrated with when the words change, but the underlying stigma doesn't change. So like, oh, let's call you differently abled or special needs. That can be very frustrating to disability advocates that I've worked with and are in community with because 
they would just rather say, I have a disability. I'm a disabled person. Say the word. It's a whole Twitter hashtag, actually, that you can look up. Yep, it is. And it, it's not about using a nicer word. It's about changing the idea. And this, the fundamental ableist idea is that people who have disabilities are less worthy. They're less worthy of good education. They're less worthy of care. In this time of COVID, they're less worthy of being resuscitated. Um, it is, it's a fundamental issue that if your, your legs work differently or your brain works differently or your ears work differently, somehow you're less valuable. And until we fundamentally address that, we're, everything else is window dressing. So math leaders need to engage in like a, understanding that. And for I, what I recommend always is going to the disability rights community, the disability activists, newer movements like disability justice, which is, uh, I'm going to use two I words in a row, which integrates intersectionality. So it's a movement that's about um, looking at how, we, how disabled activists are also uh, Black, Latinx. Uh, it, it is about the multiple identities that come together and disability is one of them, but all of those things matter and how kids are positioned in schools and how we can help them like resist, use the resistance strategies that they're using to like change the schools from within. So it's about, so it's about like shifting your idea of what's an expert. So maybe you wanna learn, maybe you think of me as an expert. I'm an expert in a certain thing, but I am not an expert in the disability experience. If you want to learn more about that, that's gonna be most important in shifting deficit ideas that you might still hold about different, different aspects of the complex world of disability. You, know, you talk about less, as you were talking about less, I was thinking about the perception sometimes that certain individuals are deemed less deserving of, of access to really good math, right? Because they just won't learn it that way, which is, Terrible. You talk about number strings, or we talked about that in, in our opening, and it made me want to think about like experiences. In your your research, um, what do you notice about the mathematical experiences for students who have been identified with a learning need? Well, I mean, first, my research is focused on like one mostly focused on learning disabilities, specific learning disabilities, so dys, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, which is a really large group of students with disabilities in our schools and adults in our society and people in my family, um, but it's not all disabilities. So that's, that's kind of the focus of my research. And what I hear, even with that, just looking at that subgroup, I hear all kinds of things. Cause of course we have kids, one of the most important things to do is to not assume that kids in one category are all the same. Kids with learning disabilities do not have all the same needs. Kids with disabilities, how could you even say that? That includes anxiety, depression, problems uh, with mobility, uh, blindness, or like vision impairment. How, how could we assume that, that those groups of people all need the same thing, right? They, they, in math class, they don't. So being a good math teacher and like responding to those differences in disability means flexibility, listening to students, listening to their experiences. So to get back to your question, what have I learned from a lot of work I've done on, under, on listening to kids and asking them questions about their classrooms? Well, I've learned for some kids, they love math. Math is their favorite time of the day. For some kids, math is the worst time of the day. It's the time where they feel a lot of anxiety. If I was, get, I, I would say three themes doesn't describe every 
every kid that I've interviewed, but three themes I think are really important. One is that a lot of kids describe low expectations in math class. So they feel that they were, they knew that they were not being held to the same standards and that bothered them. Another thing I hear is that they wanted math to make sense. They wanted to be able to make meaning of mathematics, but they weren't always given that opportunity. And Oh, another big theme was that students really talk about feeling rushed, feeling pushed through topics, uh, feeling like they didn't have enough time to learn. A lot of students with learning disabilities or dyslexia, when asked to describe their difference, they describe it in terms of time. They're like, I can learn the same thing as the person next to me. I just need a little more time to do it. And that's it. Um, so if we really take kids' experiences seriously, we can do a lot about those three things. We could fix low expectations while well, we can work on it. We can, we can work on time, giving teachers more time with kids, and we could work on, um, oh my gosh, I, lost, I forgot the third thing. Meaningful mathematics, right? <laughs> oh, and, yes. making and making sense of the math, right? And in my experience, I bet you've seen it as well, is that often, you know, it's just, well, we're, you know, I don't think you can, you deserve this really good math understanding this concept. Instead, I'm just going to give you the rote procedure and we'll just sing it. <laughs> well, I think teachers don't think of it like that, like dessert, you know, they think that's fair. They, because the language that they use is like need and it's super nice. It's like, well, this student doesn't needs and in a sweet little voice that I can't even possibly do, like needs more support. They need like, like more structure. They need to be procedural instruction. They need direct instruction. They need explicit instruction. And so like, that's what one of the ways that special education is pernicious because it's like, it's like I care for the student. I'm gonna give them what they need. I gave them a diagnostic. I found out what they need is this. Now I'm gonna just focus on what they need. So it's like, it's nice, which as a special educator, we are very nice people. I mean, don't get us wrong. Like just like math teachers. But when we diagnose the need and then we, we decide what's gonna happen without, student, without the students telling us what they need, then we're just, I mean, what are we doing? Uh, um, as a, so I was a, my former job was a district math specialist and I had the privilege of working with Kelly Cook, who was our special ed math specialist, like my counterpart in special education. And she came to me, it was probably my second or third year on the job. And we had just started having inclusion classrooms. Um, and she pulled, she pulled the data for grade distribution, not that it's a great measure of learning, but it was something and said, look, Mona, here's all your freshmen and here's your A, B, C, D, and F rate for all students. And now let's look at the inclusion students sitting in those same classrooms. And the, the D, F rate was two or three times higher for our special education, our students who were identified with special, ed, special education. And um, it was, it was heart-wrenching for me as a leader because I'm like, that was a huge tackle because we had moved to more inclusive practices yet we hadn't done all of the professional learning or the support for the inclusion classrooms where the co-teacher actually had ample time to work with the teacher and develop that more of a marriage, so to speak, in terms of teaching. So when you walk in a classroom, you don't know 
is it the general ed teacher? Is it the special education teacher? Like you don't teacher of special education, like you don't um, know. So I, my question for you, because you've you've worked in these settings, what missteps do you see happening most often for students who are identified with special needs in mathematics? I mean, I named a few, but what? Are, what are yeah, you named some really good ones. I, I was yeah. I found a follow up on that. I love how you talked about time to create good co teaching, because one of the things that I think leaders can really do is look at what is creating those situations such they don't have time for co-teaching it's you're going to have to disrupt systems because the the systems will have to change in order to have real inclusion and some of the systems that are the most pernicious like assessment like um these things will have to change and if we're going to include a like a wider range of kids into our classrooms and and really accept them yeah so but I, let me go back to your other questions like one one thing i see all the time is kids getting stalled in the basics. So what happens, I, I, I see this all the time, is I see in a fifth grade, a sixth grade, seventh grade, and even later, I see kids with IEPs being pulled out of their math classes to work on basic skills, such as memorization of the multiplication tables or like standardized algorithms. Now, this is a really, problematic situation for a lot of reasons. One, they're being pulled out. And didn't I say that those kids want math to make sense and they want, they say they need more time. So to disrupt a student who says they need more time to learn things, to pull them out of class twice a week and only have them in class three times a week, that is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the focus is memorization, right? Um, and if we're thinking about this largest group of students that I, that I spend a lot of time thinking about, students with learning disabilities, students with dyslexia, in general, and not everybody, but in general, one thing that's often true for people in that population is they're really good at big picture thinking. They're good at connecting ideas. They can be very creative and they're not good at disconnected facts. So any like phone numbers, something like that. That's a, there's been tons of research on this. So if you're taking kids, a lot of whom have dyslexia, and you're pulling them out of some meaning, like let's imagine a meaningful, beautiful math class, and you're giving them drill in the multiplication tables, you're focusing on what they actually can't do. And you're taking away their strength. And when we talk about like teaching through their strength, one of the things that that means is you, you can't just focus on what people, is, our people are bad at all the time. Imagine if that happened to any of us. You're really bad at this. So now you're going to spend this much time again and again and again focused on what you're bad at focused on what you're bad at one fascinating thing about this was that this study that it's published and it's open access so maybe we could give the link on dyslexic mathematicians i did this with um edmund harris who is a mathematician at the university of arkansas and is a dyslexic mathematician himself and so we interviewed other dyslexic mathematicians and one of the things that we found is these amazing mathematicians who were like topologists and doing like incredible work in three-dimensional spheres, all this stuff. None of them knew their multiplication facts. So please explain <laughs> to me then why these research mathematicians who don't know, they're like, I just derived them. I like to derive them from squares or I, they had all different ways of finding them, but the actual, that little snippet, that memorization thing, that wasn't accessible to them. Yet they're research mathematicians. So, so when we stall kids at the basics, 
we are closing out their mathematical future. They are not gonna become dyslexic mathematicians if we have them spend all their time on what is hardest for them. I think the last three minutes of what you said, this entire listen was worth it right there. And yeah. we need to put that on a billboard, a Goodyear blimp and a couple other places, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> because, you know, at, at least to me, it resonates loudly with me because one of the things I've noticed about steps being is that when students um, have some challenges in math, Right, we just take away all the math and say, okay, just just know this and just memorize this, and that's not how they think about math or that they process. They need to see connections and experiences, and memorization isn't the way to go. Speed doesn't always help, right? That is fantastic. All right, I got to ask you a different question. Tell me about your research um, on student narratives, or tell us, I should say, uh, about your research on the student narratives, the students who have been labeled with a disability. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So one of the takeaways with these studies where um, I interview students is that kids really listen to the messages we give them about mathematics, their families, <laughs> their teachers, their friends. And how I know this is because I've done multiple studies where I spend a lot of time in a math classroom. So it was like one classroom I was in 26 times in, during a year. And then I interview kids multiple times. And so what I'm listening for, one of the things that I'm looking for is like, what is the teacher communicating about mathematics, both through the tasks that they ask them to do and through the like messaging around mathematics that the teacher gives. And then how do the kids take up those ideas or like reject them? So one thing that really matters when you're thinking about students with disabilities or really all students is how they understand what being good or bad at math is because one really troubling thing is that they are, they are likely to feel that they are bad at math, right? They're likely to feel like that because they've often had experiences where math was really challenging for them. So I'm interested in how do these kids, like what messages do they get from their classroom about what math is and how, how, how to be good at it? And then how do they then understand themselves based on like for many of them, some struggles in mathematics. And so I did a study in 2010 in a classroom and this classroom started off with some great inquiry-based mathematics, but ended up sort of veering into test prep. And when I interviewed the kids, they told me that being good at math was being fast. The faster you are, the better you are at math. And so for kids with disabilities in the classroom, um, a girl with ADHD and a, and a boy who had LD on his IP, they reframed that. They were like reclaiming slow. They're like, I'm slow, but it doesn't matter because I'm still good. But they still had to make sense of those messages. Five years later, I did another study where the teacher really actively subverted that. The teacher would say things like, oh, we didn't finish the math problem today. You know what? Mathematicians take time. She'd like read them stories about how some mathematicians are like, I think slowly. And that's how I think deeply. And so when I interviewed those students, and she also gave them a steady diet of beautiful inquiry problems. Students with disabilities in that classroom, when I interviewed them, what, what makes you good at math? It was much more open. And they did not tell me that speed made them good at math. They told me that some people think speed makes you good at math, but they didn't say that, that they thought it was true. So this is scary as teachers because it makes us think, oh no, the children are listening to us. Ah, But we are giving them opportunities to construct identities like whether they're gonna feel like they have this future in mathematics or they don't. And we can, we can change that. That's what that tells me. What that messaging tells me is that we can, we can teach them 
through what we do and through what we say that they are good at math, that there's multiple ways to be good at math and that there is a place for them in mathematics. And everything you just said there is so important because we talk about this for each and every student and sometimes students get marginalized um, because of special needs and things of that nature and their identities and agency matter too. I hope our listeners really draw that home with the, the staff that they support. Yeah, and there's a great, um, so I went to the website, Mathematizing for All with the number four, and you have an mm -hmm. article on there. That's why I, I liked the question because I there was a story about Desi oh, uh, and she, and you wrote about her and it was just really interesting to read it because when you, at the very opening of it, you talk about that she was bilingual um, and that she was like really a really strong poet. And I think we lose that sometimes when a student comes into our class and there is a stigma attached to their learning needs before they come in. So it's like, we're not seeking to understand their identity outside of that disability. So I think it's really important. Like I, I would, that really just reading that story just cemented, <laughs> cemented some work for me around seeking to understand students and develop their ability to do mathematics. It's really important. Um, which brings me, I got sidetracked on there. The next, the next thing I wanted just, so to close up a little bit around, what would you suggest for math leaders? Like if we're going to shift our thinking and change the game for students with disabilities, what would be like your top suggestions that where, where, where do we need to start? Or where do we need to continue? Uh, well, I mean, you said first, I would, I would, you know, do the work as you do in any area of equity, you need to do work um, to relearn certain things that you've been taught yourself messages you've taken up, and to understand some of this stuff echoing what you just said that like, sometimes kids with disabilities are sort of seen as not whole humans, they're not seen as a, like Desi's an example, a, La a Latina with a learning disability or with ADHD, depending on the year, with a, a poet, right? She's complex, she's a very complex kid. And that's the route to understanding her, to teaching her, to knowing her, and then helping her grow in the ways that make sense to her, right? So I, I risk, thank you, I, risk, I love that you brought that out. I think it's important. Many of these kids I'm talking about in my interviews, they're uh, Latinx, and so that's a, and emergent bilinguals. So, and they also have a disability. Yeah. All right, but to go back to this other thing, I think that the work, there's a lot of work to be done at the leadership level and a lot of really important work because teachers are stuck in systems that they feel they can't control around this issue. So IEPs are a really good example. Like teachers feel that there's nothing they can do about an IEP, whereas IEPs can be talked about at the district level. You can do, try to move towards practice, The IEPs that connect to the standards of mathematical practice, because what has more longevity, a multiplication facts goal or a goal that tries to increase a student's participation in mathematical discourse? One of those goals, well, maybe it's not done in a year. You can make year benchmarks for it, though. And that goal, like it, that's something to really invest in. Invest in a kid's persistence in problem solving. Invest in the standards of mathematical practice as core core the core ways in which a kid can take can like grow in mathematics. 
So that's an initiative I've seen districts work on collaboratively, special education and math education. Um, there, there's other things that you can do, providing professional development. I know a district where the special education department was like, oh yeah, we wanna provide math PD, we wanna provide math PD, but they need to do compliance and IEP, they need to do this behavioral PD. So the math department, the math like wing of the district decided to fund it themselves and organize it themselves. So they created an entire series of math professional development for all the special educators in the district. And it ended up, it was a little conscientious at first, but it ended up creating this, like a, a changed relationship between those departments mm -hmm. because the math teacher, the special education teachers were like, this is great. We've never gotten math PD before. We love it. Um, this is helping us so much in our practice. So it's about, like you said, Mona, it's about coming together with those professionals at our level and also and figuring out what practices that you can make better for teachers, giving them more time to co-teach, actually supporting co-teaching rather than just throwing teachers into it. These are the changes that we're gonna have to make if we wanna change math class to be more inclusive. We have to change these rules that structure students, the teachers' lives. Because special education, is a bunch of rules. It's really compliance driven. Yeah. And leadership has to change some of that stuff. Teachers can resist them and not follow the rules, but they, you know, that stuff has to really be worked on at a leadership level. That's excellent, Rachel. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. I mean, this has been just a must listen for, for our members and our listeners. Um, so again, I wanna say thank you. And it's something that I'm passionate about and need to learn more about in your work. Uh, lights the way. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. This was a great conversation and very timely, as I know that I'm working with teams in the next few weeks, and they're going to be bringing up IEP conversations. So <laughs> perfect for me. <laughs> Not perfect. Yay! Right. Whatever. It's so exciting. <laughs> perfect. All right. Well, thank All you. All right. And thank you listeners for spending some time with us again, thinking about how we can change the game in math education. We look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay well and um, be well. We hope you have been inspired by this bold mathematics leadership conversation and will tune into our podcast series each month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. You can learn more about NCSM Leadership in Mathematics Education and our upcoming professional learning events on the NCSM website at mathedleadership.org. You can also follow NCSM on Twitter at MathAdLeaders using the hashtag NCSMBold. Thanks again.